Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's topic is a fascinating and complicated and challenging one. Uh, basically, you know, can people be physical and still be saved, still have whatever a soul is or um, whatever it is that la- allows us to be in relationship with God? Do we need to have an immaterial soul for that to be the case? Or can people be completely physical entities and the basics of Christian theology still be true. That is what we are talking about today. Now, one thing that's worth explaining up front is that there are two kinds of naturalism or physicalism. Uh, The first is called metaphysical naturalism. This is the view that the only things that exist anywhere are physical things. There's nothing beyond the physical. This metaphysical naturalism would rule out almost every conception of God, since God is usually, by definition, more than the physical world, even if all of the physical world is contained within the divine, as in panentheism, something that we've talked about a little bit on this show. Neither of my guests today are talking about this metaphysical naturalism. Uh, And by the way, this is also not the view that, quote, science takes. In science, it's called methodological naturalism. That means that when you're doing science, you will only appeal to material or physical entities and causes. You can't say, given the data, it seems to us that God supernaturally made this happen, 
and still be doing science. That's just not science. You might think as a person and you might be right that God supernaturally did something, but that's not science. So that's methodological naturalism. Uh, if you're doing that, you just have to assume no non-material causes. The kind of naturalism we're talking about today is one really regarding human beings, human persons. Do humans have an immaterial soul? Both of my guests today are arguing that you can, in fact, be a Christian in a robust sense without believing in an immaterial soul. At first, this might seem counterintuitive. If I don't have a soul, what exactly about me gets saved? Am I really just my body? And yet there are strong reasons that we should consider this move, even if we don't end up making it. But I'll leave those arguments to my first guest today, author of the recent book, The Human Instinct, and about a decade ago of the fabulous book, Finding Darwin's God. This is Dr. Kenneth Miller. So, Ken, you are a biologist at Brown University. You're also a practicing Catholic for, I believe, decades. Is that right? I was uh, baptized a Catholic at birth, brought up within the church. But like a lot of people, I walked away from the church from faith a couple of times, um, but always came back to it. So, yes, I, I am uh, today a faithful Catholic who receives the sacraments, attends Mass on Sunday. So, Ken... Can you describe for us this argument that is found in skeptical circles, that the more we learn about neurobiology, the less reason we have to encounter, to consider something like a soul? Well, um, I'll explain the argument in a second, but it's similar to the argument that uh, Richard Dawkins made when he said that the great contribution of Charles Darwin is that he made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Right. And the reason he said that was because there certainly are atheists who preceded Darwin and are skeptics going back centuries. But his point was, until we have an explanation for the diversity of life, uh, it's much easier to say that God made everything in the Garden of Eden. But when Darwin comes up with an explanation for the origin of species, suddenly that goes out. So suddenly, uh, in Richard's view, Darwin had made it possible for people to say, yeah, we do have a coherent worldview that does not involve the deity. Now, with respect to the issue of the soul, this depends on what one means by a soul. And right. we're certainly going to talk about this. But if, for example, by a soul, you mean an explanation for the sense of self, for our ability to reason, for the processing of information that we do. In other words, if you think the soul is the spark that animates the body, then every time we come up with a cellular or biochemical or physical explanation for perception, behavior, memory, and so forth, then what's left for the soul to do recedes. Yeah, it's like um, if, if you have a God of the gaps argument for the soul, every time you fill in a gap, God gets smaller or the soul gets smaller. Yeah, yeah, no, I exactly right. And and it, as, as you and many of your listeners may know, over the years, I've been involved in one battle after another against so-called scientific creationism or intelligent design. And what the advocates of these points of view cite as evidence for what they would like you to regard as a scientific theory 
is simply to say science, look at this, science can't explain it. Look at that, science can't explain it. Well, if that's the evidence for your theory, that theory recedes every time science explains a little bit more. And if you use the, the existence of the soul as the default explanation for everything that makes us human in terms of our mental and intellectual capacity, then absolutely neuroscience would be a threat to the concept of the soul. On this view, we're talking about like an immaterial soul, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think the very definition of a soul is an, an immaterial uh, aspect of human nature. So what you uh, and Rebecca are arguing for is basically a rethinking of what the soul or whatever the, the attributes that we ascribe to a non-material soul, just finding them in the material. I, I suppose that's fair to say. Here's, here's the one way in which I'd want to shade what you just said a little bit. To be a theist, to believe in a god of any sort, one has to believe or one does believe that there is a spiritual dimension mm -hmm. that is not physical, that transcends the physical. Uh, many of my uh, atheist and uh, agnostic friends um, are always uh, looking for physical evidence of the existence of God and not finding any. They declare uh, him not to exist. But in very conventional Abrahamic theology, God is not in nature. God is the reason for nature. Right. Um, and therefore, one should not expect to be able to carry out observations or conduct physical experiments that would detect God as part of that nature. So, in terms of the soul itself, again, to be a theist is to believe in a spiritual aspect to existence, and if the concept of the soul is authentic, it is in that sphere. It's in the spiritual sphere which a soul in, in which a soul would exist. There's a distinction between a layperson and someone who's doing apologetics or doing, you know, faith, faith influenced scientific work or whatever. Let's leave the lay people, leave them off the hook for now. But for the people who are trying to do serious work, do those people simply posit a soul because they lack sufficient neurological literacy? Um, I don't have any doubt that there are some people who posit a soul for exactly that reason. One of the things that I've been told by Christians, and I'm going to read something now, uh, the usual translation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 is this, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So there it is. God made a man with a soul. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 19, talks about the creation of animals. And that's translated in King James as, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Now here's the interesting thing. The words living soul in King James and living creature uh, translated that way, when you go to the original Hebrew, both of them are written as nefesh chayat. Nefesh Chayah. And the, the concept of a soul is actually not in the Old Testament, despite the King James translation. And the fact that Nefesh Chayah means living creature does not necessarily say anything about a soul. And the soul itself, and this is very important 
for Christians to understand. The soul itself is a Greek concept. And early Christianity, of course, grew up in a Greek-influenced culture that was persuasive throughout the Mediterranean. That's why, for example, the, the, the epistles, the letters of Paul, uh, the original language of those is, in fact, Greek. Uh, and that's true with the Gospels as well. So the concept of a soul is actually sort of pasted onto uh, Abrahamic theology by, uh, you might say, Greek uh, philosophy or Greek theology. Uh, and that's an important thing to appreciate. Yeah. So speaking of that time differential, uh, all the way back to the early uh, Israelite authors, forward to Christians and, and Christian theologians who are writing in a, in a Greek-influenced environment, all the way to today, what do we need to consider as modern people if we want to take the knowledge that we have gathered in neuroscience, in biology? What do we need to consider with that new understanding that the formulators of these doctrines, both both the writers of scripture and then the sort of church fathers and, you know, all the way through Aquinas and Calvin and Luther, all the big, all the big names— what do we know that they don't know that we, we really need to be honest about the fact that they're, we, we've learned a lot? First of all, the brain is a chemical machine. And uh, you know many, many listeners might recoil at that. I'm just a machine. No, I didn't say you were a machine. I said the brain is a chemical machine. It works by chemical means. Uh, I can put very simple molecules into my body like lithium and a few others. Um, and these can make me happy. They can make me sad. They can make me confident. They can make me paranoid. Um, and that tells you right away that your very mood, your innermost thoughts uh, can be chemically influenced. So right. that's the first thing to appreciate. The second thing is that the brain is a cellular machine. It, it is perhaps the single most complicated assembly of cells that we know about in nature is the human brain with perhaps 70 billion cells uh, organized in enormously complex ways. As a biologist, and in particular as a cell biologist, which is my field, I'm absolutely convinced, and I think almost all neuroscientists are as well, that there's nothing that happens up there, nothing happening in my head, that is not explicable in terms of the laws of physics and chemistry and the cell biology of neural connections in the brain. Now, uh, many people might think, oh, that's terrible. You're, you're materializing human beings. Well, we are um, material beings. Remember the language of Genesis uh, that I just, just quoted, which is Lord for, the Lord formed man out of the dust of the earth. We are material creatures. Scripture recognizes that. Uh, another quote that you hear on Ash Wednesday, remember man, thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. Uh, if there is a God who is responsible for us in one way or another, he used matter and energy as the tools with which to build our bodies. Now, that doesn't threaten, uh, from my point of view, the idea of a soul. And the way in which I understand the soul is I take it as, you might say, the spiritual reflection of our individuality as, uh, as individuals or as organisms. I do not think that the soul is a mystical spark that animates the body. That's why I don't think we should be threatened by neuroscience any more than we should be threatened by advances in muscle physiology that mm. explain how muscles work. Yeah. Um, ra rather, you know, if God exists, he is a spiritual creature, and the promise, the hope, 
that God gives to us is the hope of spiritual immortality. Continuing on this line of sort of the the evidence or the the understanding of what the brain is, there is some really interesting research that's been done uh, that we can stimulate parts of a person's brain. They'll experience certain things. We've done it with rats, with light and triggering certain neurons. Like, can you give us one or two examples of this really jaw-dropping and pretty conclusive research? Well, there's a couple of things here. One is, and uh, neurosurgeons discovered this quite a long time ago, uh, the brain doesn't have any sensory nerves. So therefore, when one uh, does brain surgery, whether to remove a tumor or to, to treat an injury or a disorder like Parkinson's, um, a patient can actually be conscious. And there are certain conditions, actually, for which the surgeon wants the patient conscious uh, because they might want to see if a tremor is being eased by surgical intervention. Right, seeing if it's so working in real time. You might have yeah. a conscious patient holding his hand up, waiting for tremors to cease and this sort of stuff. But oh my it's been known for a long time, if you touch with an electrode certain areas of the cortex, the outer cur- uh, uh, layer of the brain, in the right place, people will say, I taste peppermint. Or I see red. Wow. Or I hear music. Or I can remember a specific memory. The experiments you're talking about with respect to mice and rats, we've mapped uh, some of their brains to the point where we can artificially stimulate them to make them feel afraid uh, or make them act aggressively. And that's what I mean when I say the brain is a cellular machine. Yeah. I feel like we, since we're so close, I should at least ask you one question about this emerging research, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, of people taking, uh, being administered psilocybin and other psychedelics and having what they would describe as religious experiences. What is your take on that work? I know it's early, but but what do you think? I'm not sure how new that is. Don't forget, I lived through the 60s. And the old joke is, if you could remember the 60s, you really weren't there. There were people in college who were just doing marijuana and stuff like that, but did LSD and mushrooms and things like that. And they would say that they had spiritual experiences, meaning, you know, otherworldly experiences, that they could step outside their own body, that they could see heaven and this sort of stuff. Um, I, I, I don't doubt the validity of their first person accounts of what they experienced. Hmm. But the key thing to appreciate is that we see and experience the world, first of all, through our senses, and secondly, through what our brain makes of that sensory inputs. And that can really be quite different. And I mentioned the fact that the brain is a chemical machine. And any number of these chemicals affect the release, the breakdown, the stability of neurotransmitters. Remember that the brain, to an extent, can rewire itself uh, and therefore, people often speak, or people I knew who took LSD, talked about it being a life-changing experience. Right. You know what? It, prob- it probably was um, in, yeah. hard, in hardcore scientific physiological terms. So I don't doubt these. Um, I'm not sure that they provide uh, any proof for the reality of God or the spiritual beyond the psychedelic experience, but I certainly think as I mentioned, the first-person accounts of these things are, are, are things that I certainly believe. You kind of hinted at this in your answer. Uh, what's going on in the neurons 
between the neurons, whatever, in the cells of the brain is not re- – conscious experience is not reducible to a description of those interactions, if I'm hearing you right. And I have this question for you of like why is describing the, phys- the physical properties of thought not the same thing as describing the conscious experience of a person having thoughts? I'll try to give you a straightforward an explanation of that as I possibly can. Um, we are very, very close to understanding the details of the processing of visual information in terms of colors, brightness, textures that we can see, and so forth. And um, I think it's certainly clear that if we advance our understanding of sensory input just a little bit, we would be able to determine the exact impulses that would be necessary coming down the optic nerve to perceive something as being yellow or red. So we'd be able to describe the impulses and the wiring that produce the sensation of yellow, or for that matter, the sensation of red. But here's the, here's the real question. Um, uh, I would ask all your listeners, close your eyes and think of the color red. I'm actually doing that right now. And I'm sure you all have this picture. Okay, now here's my question. How do you know that what you sense when you see red is the same as what I sense when I see red. Maybe to me, the sensation of red is the same sensation that you would use to describe yellow. And um, you might say, well, no, that's easy. That's easy. I can do it. Red is the color of a fire. Red is the color of a fire engine or a brilliant sunset. Well, it is. But again, how do I know that your sensation when you see that fire engine or when you see that sunset is uh, not the same as the sensation that I see when I see something that I might call yellow. And the answer is that we have no way of knowing it. And I'll put it one other way. Let's take as an example a person who has been blind since birth. Um, There's absolutely no reason why someone who's blind cannot become an accomplished neuroscientist and could participate in the research that I just talked about in terms of trying to inventory the exact impulses that come out of the retina through the optic nerve to produce this sensation that that scientist is told that produces a sensation of yellow. And that scientist might be able to get a complete scientific description of how the brain perceives yellow. However, that blind person would never, ever be able to understand what you and I mean when we talk about the sensation of seeing yellow. That is the inward experience. In a way, that's what Robert Chambers called the hard problem of consciousness. Right. How do we go from the the sensory input that we can characterize and study, uh, how do we go from that to the inner subjective experience of being you or being me? Now, I'm I'm not super fluent in this world, but... My understanding is that one way of describing, one way of answering the hard problem is through this idea of emergent properties. Indeed. And so will you explain to us what, what that means? What do, what do we mean by emergent properties? Well, I can do it in a sentence, which is the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Right. And um, l- let me put it this way. 
because I think matter itself is replete with emergent properties. Right. Now, uh, again, I'm a scientist, and I look for reality in terms of matter and energy in the world around us. Um, let's take, for example, a, 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 a protein. Uh, let's take a, 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 a protein like hemoglobin. Uh, hemoglobin is uh, the protein that makes uh, blood red. It's a, an oxygen-binding protein. We can study its properties and so forth. Now, we're still learning things about the size, shape, and activity of the hemoglobin molecule. Um, given the fact that hemoglobin is a protein that is simply made up of atoms that are bonded to each other, you might think, why do we even have to study it? Because if we understand the properties of the nitrogen atom, the oxygen atom, the hydrogen atom, the iron atom that's at, this, at the center of hemoglobin, um, we yeah. know all those. So we should be able to build up from these basic yeah, principles. Yeah, we just say it's whatever the hydrogen's doing plus whatever. The, what, yeah, it should, it, it should just be that. It, sh it should be that simple. But you know what? It's not. It's not. If it were that simple, it would put protein chemists out of business to say nothing about organic chemists. All of life would be atomic physics. Hmm. But it turns out that when matter is organized into increasingly complex arrays, new properties emerge. And they emerge not because of some magical hand sort of infesting them with these new properties, but they emerge simply because... When we have aggregates of matter, there are new properties emerge because these complex assemblies don't behave in ways that are precisely predictable from their individual atoms. That's not to say that their properties are based in anything other than matter. They are based in matter. But basically, a greater degree of complexity emerges. And I'll just give you an example that's really an analogy. And that is, in English... The entire, forget capital letters for a second, the entire repertoire of anything we might express with the English language is 26 letters plus a space and maybe six symbols. Uh, we need the period, the question, you know, that sort of stuff. That, for example, um, is sufficient to provide the entire typescript of the play Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Now, you can put all this stuff on a page and, oh, there's the letter H. Uh, there's a letter W, there's a period, there's a space, there's a dash, and so forth and so on. That's a complete descriptor of the play Hamlet. First the letter here, then another letter, then another letter. But there's drama in Hamlet that transcends those mere letters in the same way that a single tonal note might be at the basis of a great symphony. But it's not the collection of notes is not sufficient to explain your experience of listening to a symphony by Beethoven, or for that matter, reading and understanding a play by Shakespeare. So there are new levels of meaning that adhere when we take simple things like a letter or a tonal note and aggregate them together. Uh, similarly, there are new properties that emerge when matter is assembled in this way that are not strictly predictable from the ground up, even though they are themselves based in matter and energy. Um, many people in physics have pointed this out. And again, if that were not true, for example, when an organic chemist synthesized a brand new compound that had never existed before, and chemists do this all the time as part of drug discovery and everything else, uh, one of the first things they do is they characterize it, which is to say they measure its solubility, they determine its melting point, they measure its spectral absorption, all these things. If we were actually able to start 
with atomic physics and predict from the ground up, we would not have to do all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, and any organic chemist will tell you this, when you synthesize a new molecule, you might have a rough idea of what its physical properties are, but you won't be sure until you actually measure them because that level of ground up uh, prediction from the ground up is actually not possible in detail. And this emergence goes all the way from quantum quantum bits, whatever we want to call those, all the way up to nations, right? It's sort of like saying, uh, it's like someone saying, hey, I'll, t- I'll really explain to you why Donald Trump won. It's at the quark level. I mean, you just, it wouldn't be a good explanation. It would No, be, not a good explanation. Right. You know, it, it, would, it would be as trivial as saying, oh, I know why he won. He got more electoral votes. Right. It's like we, we need uh, political theorists to talk about that, and we need polling data, and we need people who can analyze these, these more emergent properties, and probably we need psychologists who can talk about the individual human level and, and the, the state or yep. or county level, you know. Yeah. There's and I, and on a, and on a less political level, the behavior of a large crowd, right, is stands apart from the behavior of individuals within that crowd. Exactly. So there are there are properties that emerge when assemblies, whether they're people or atoms or molecules or cells, become more and more complex. Right. So the reason I wanted to have you on today, besides your voluminous knowledge, Ken, is. Uh, you have done some lecturing on this topic of sort of physicalism and Christianity, and I found it very helpful and very clarifying. And what I want to do is uh, use some framework that you've used before. You say, in order to be a Christian and a physicalist or materialist, there are three issues that come up as pillars of Christian theology at, that relate to the soul. If we're going to have a physicalist view and we're still going to be Christians, we need to make sure that we have a reasonable case that all three of these pillars can remain intact. What are those three pillars? And and briefly, why are they important for Christian theology? Uh, please keep in mind, I'm not a theologian and I'm not a neuroscientist. Um, but I certainly am conversant with what goes on in neuroscience. What purposes... Do the, does the concept of the soul actually serve in Christian theology? And I would say there are three purposes. The first one is the doctrine of the immortality of the self. The second is the freedom to make independent choices. And the third is the hope of redemption. And what I said in one of those lectures is that a mind that is truly based in matter, a material mind, is not a contradiction of any of these theological imperatives, and therefore the rapid advance of neuroscience need not threaten the soul. So let's start with the first one, immortality of the self. The body is certainly not immortal. We all know this. Um, If the soul is immortal, what does it mean? Well, it, it doesn't mean that we have 21 grams of soul that slip out of the body upon death. That's a juvenile notion. But what it does mean is that each of us possesses an individuality which transcends the material and is part of the spiritual world. If we have immortality, it's a spiritual kind of immortality. Uh, the second thing is the freedom to make independent choices. Uh, in other words, free will. I do not think that one has to presuppose that uh, free will is somehow based in spirit rather than based in matter, energy, and, and cellular okay, biology. Okay, so that's the crucial claim, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And um, uh, in my new book, which is called The Human Instinct, How We Evolved to Have Reason, Consciousness, and Free Will, um, I did write an entire chapter on free will, and I dealt with it in other chapters as well. From my way of thinking, the existence of genuine free will is not just something that uh, is theologically necessary. I'd go further. I'd say free will is scientifically necessary. And the reason for that is if we do not have free will, and by free will, I mean the ability to take in information, evaluate choices, and come to decisions based uh, on that information, then science itself is not valid. In other words, if your actions and thoughts and everything you do all day is predetermined, by the conditions of a deterministic physical world around you, then you've never had an independent thought or made an independent judgment in your entire life. Science is predicated on the notion that we can be independent observers of nature and can come to conclusions and test those conclusions in a rigorous scientific way. If we are determined by a physical universe such that we are not able to act as independent agents, then the very science on which we base the conclusion that we lack free will is itself invalid. Uh, And no less a person than Stephen Hawking, not a theist at all, but no less a person than Stephen Hawking realized that. And he said, you know, if the universe is strictly deterministic, then it would determine everything we do, including the theoretical explanations that we give for the natural world, meaning the initial conditions would determine the theories we arrive at, and therefore we would have no reason to actually know whether those theories are true or not. And this is J.B.S. Haldane. Uh, Haldane, uh, a uh, mid-20th century scientist, prolific writer, uh, atheist, enthusiast in terms of popularizing evolution. Uh, And he had the same insight, and here's what he wrote. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I actually have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms in the first place. Hmm. So if, if we don't have a sense of free will and a sense of agency, independent agency, all of this falls apart. So the third one, Ken, is the hope of redemption or resurrection. You could kind of play with that either way, but there's that verse from Paul, you know, if we're not, Jesus is not raised, then we're not raised and we're to be pity, pitied of all men. That that kind of eschatological, in the end, we are redeemed and that somehow that is related to Jesus's resurrection and, and in some sense our own. That's the third one but we're going to tackle that with Rebecca. I want to keep talking with you about free will. Here's the um, the most common, and we, we kind of got to it, but I want to just, I want to keep sticking with this. Laws of physics are deterministic. This is one view. So how can our conscious selves, and by extension, our moral and spiritual selves, in physical matter, following these deterministic laws, how can we still hold to free choice? Determinist, free if we're based in, if the brain is all matter, and if matter goes on physics, you know, whatever. How do we get something that's not determined? Okay, a couple things. Uh, one is 
at its finest level, at the level of uh, subatomic particles, uh, physics is not deterministic. That's the great discovery that revolutionized, or set of discoveries that revolutionized physics in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and we talk about quantum fluctuations. We talk about the collapse of the wave function. If, if you watch the Big Bang Theory program on TV, you may have heard more than you ever wanted to about Schrodinger's cat which is a notion of certain behaviors being non-deterministic. So at its finest level, the physical universe is not deterministic. Now, does that account for free will? It, it would account for a kind of free will if all you wanted was randomness, if all you wanted right. was unpre unpredictability. And in fact, I would argue that the behavior of an individual neuron given the number of inputs to the neuron, the movement of molecules, all sorts of things, is non-deterministic to a certain point. But I'd like to think, and probably everybody else would, that when we reason, when we make judgments, when we think about things, it's more than just a bunch of cells rolling the dice. There's something actually going on there. Right. Now, I have to confess that I cannot go up to the blackboard and draw a neural circuit that, and then say, here, here is where free will would reside or decision-making would take place. A couple people have tried. Uh, Peter Ulrich Tse, T-S-E, a professor of neuroscience at Dartmouth College, has written a book called The Neural Causation of Free Will, The Neural Basis of Free Will. And he's argued for an idea that he calls critical causation, which is that the brain's ability to rewire itself on the sort of super microscopic level allows basically one action of the brain to physically change the brain in a way that is intentional and therefore can account for the kind of free will that we value which is the ability to look at what's going on and make independent judgments that are not necessarily predetermined. Now, it's a fairly – I'm not going to go further than that because it's a very, very complicated idea. And Professor Tse took a whole book to go through it. But I think, I think many of the people who uh, oppose the idea of free will are basically trying to say that the, what they really want to do is they want to exclude spiritualism. They want to exclude anything mystical, anything soul-like from the actions of the brain. They want to say, hey, it's cellular and it's physical. Well, I think it is cellular and it is physical. But in terms of strict determinism, that's fatal to, to, to science itself for the reasons that I outlined briefly. Uh, a couple years ago, I was at a conference in New York City. Uh, I was in a panel on the platform. Uh, my panel concluded that another panel got up to discuss things. And one of the people on the panel was the great evolutionary biologist, E.O. Wilson. Ed Wilson is a brilliant guy and a great scientist. As part of his remarks, he basically argued that we don't have free will. Uh, everything is strictly deterministic. Um, the notion of free will is destructive to society. It increases emotions like guilt. We should do away with it. We should acknowledge we don't have free will. So he makes this argument similar to Sam Harris. Then in the question and answer period, Someone asked, Dr. Wilson, what do you consider to be the greatest challenge uh, to life on this planet? And he then uh, launched uh, into a cause that is passionate for him, which is preserving biodiversity. We needed to maintain the planet's viability, its ecosystems. Also, 
biodiversity is a rich source of as yet undiscovered drugs, pharmaceuticals. We need all these plants that we don't understand and all these animals that we haven't characterized. It, it, it contains sentiments that any biologist would completely agree with, and I'm no exception to that. So bravo to Ed Wilson. Here's the irony. He had just been arguing that we don't have free will. Then when asked a question, he launched into a passionate speech to um, urge his listeners, who right. presumably lack free will, to use the free will that they do not have to make the choice to, prefer, to preserve biodiversity. Right. And he might as well – he might logically just as well have said – It'd be great to preserve biodiversity. Of course, I'm not free to say that. That's determined. And I'd love to see you go out and act to preserve biodiversity. But you're going to do whatever you're going to do because your lives are determined. So there's no point in me convincing you of it. So finishing up here with you, you are a physicalist and you believe in free will. It seems like mainly your argument is that the opposite view is uh, self-defeating. That's different than saying, here's a model for how we have free will and we're physical beings. Do you think that there's an answer to that? Is there a positive model or do you more have hope and expect that a model will come in the future? I don't have a model or I would have given it to you. Well, sure. Um, but, on the, but on the other hand, none of the determinists can give you a deterministic model of how the brain works either. Hmm. Um, it is that complicated a structure. And I'll use an example that I sometimes give to my students of how what you might call free choice can arise out of randomness. And this is based on the work of Howard Berg, a cellular biologist. But Berg was interested in chemotaxis, the property by which uh, uh, certain cells, bacteria, for example, will swim towards, let's say, a gradient of sugar. If you put nutrients in one side of a flask and the sugar dissolves, the bacteria will swim towards the sugar. Or if you put a noxious chemical in there on one side, they will swim away from it. Uh, so he's interested. These are just bacteria, man. These are single cells. They don't even have a nucleus. How do they decide which way to go? Hmm. So Howard, Howard invented uh, a microscope. This is way back in the 70s, man. This is incredible work for back then. A microscope uh, that combined with video would fix on, focus on an individual bacteria cell as it swam, and would follow it. In other words, the microscope stage would automatically move left, right, up, down, in, out as the bacterium swam. And he'd do it in response to a gradient. Here's what he found. And that is bacteria will swim with their flagella in a particular direction for a few milliseconds or maybe in a few seconds. Then they'll stop, they'll tumble randomly, and then they'll swim off in a new direction. That's how they behave. Now, given that, how do the, the mob of bacteria manage to swim towards food that they like or away from chemicals that might harm them? And what Berg discovered is they still swim in a straight line, they tumble randomly, and then they start swimming again. However, if the bacterium happens to be swimming towards something it likes, like, like food molecules, and the concentration of those molecules is going, up going up as it swims, it tumbles less often. Right. If it's swimming towards something that basically is poisonous or noxious, it tumbles more often. So the tumbling is still random, but the response to the environment basically enables it, you might say, to make a choice that's still unpredictable on an individual level, but is based in the circumstances around it. Now, I am not saying 
for a moment that that's how the brain works. But it gives you an example of how you can harvest basically a so-called decision from a behavior that on its surface appears to be random. And, and that's I, what I, quantum physics is. It's uh, it's random. Uh, there are certain elements in quantum parts, physics yeah. which are, which are un, and I prefer the word unpredictable from random. Sure. Random means you just get anything. Um, what quantum physics tells us is the subsequent state of an individual particle uh, can can take any of various conditions, not anything. Right. And isn't there a, a probability, like a probabilistic kind That's of right. a standard That's curve? right. If you, yeah. you, you fire photons through a slit, you get sort of a, a, a Gaussian distribution that goes out towards the sides. Yeah. Any individual photon has a certain probability of ending up here or there or somewhere else. Um, but that's basically it. So I don't have an explanation for free will. Um, I do want to make the argument that you can have an unpredictable biological system that makes you what you might call conscious decisions. And I also want to make the point that the very existence of agency, as we might call it, is essential to the scientific enterprise itself. And without it, yeah. science as a logical whole simply falls apart. Despite the incredible advances of neuroscience, we are children in terms of beginning to learn how the brain actually works at the level of thought, uh, at the level of reason, at the level of decision-making. We have an awful lot more to learn. Last question for you. I'd like you to speak to a certain kind of listener, okay? Maybe they, they were either raised Christian or they are interested in Christianity, but maybe they've been listening to a lot of Sam Harris podcasts. They've They've been kind of... Uh, enjoying the intellectual dark web folks and they have this worry about free will and faith and, and they have this intuition through a lot of their reading and conversations, perhaps their friends conversations that like, yeah, religion is wrong because it just posits all these fanciful explanations for things that are just physical. Uh, we can leave behind that silliness, but there's a part of them because they're listening to this podcast that doesn't want to let go of God doesn't they don't want that to be true they just sort of have come to feel like that's probably what i need to say if i'm being honest what would you say to a person in that position the sam harrises and the richard dawkins of the world have to presuppose that nature is self-explanatory in other words that existence does not require a reason for itself or a cause i'm fond of telling people that i don't have enough faith to be an atheist and what I mean by that is to be truly an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of something of God, of something outside nature. I would have to be content with the idea that nature, as we see it, as we study it in science, is completely self-explanatory. Uh, Albert Einstein once wrote, there are only two ways to believe. One way is that nothing is a miracle, and the other way is that everything is a miracle. And I go with the latter. And I, what I would argue is that everyone in science uh, practices science based on two elements of faith. And I'm not talking about religious faith, but two things that we take as a matter of faith. The first thing is that existence, that the universe itself can be understood by the human mind. If we did not believe that, we would not practice science. And the second thing is that truth or knowledge is better than ignorance, and therefore the universe is worth understanding. What is the basis of that first element of faith? If you're a non-believer, 
you have no reason to believe that there's any cause for the universe being logical, for mathematics being effective in describing the forces of gravity or the atomic forces and so forth. On the other hand, if you are a person of faith, you have a very good explanation for that first element, which is that the universe is understandable. And that is the logic that we've uh, the logic of existence the mathematics that describes nature exists precisely because the universe has an intelligent cause and that intelligent cause is what we call god therefore for me it's not as though i find something in science that validates the existence of god rather it's a, it's as though my faith in god is what validates for me the necessity and the intellectual rigor of the scientific enterprise Very well said. Ken, thank you so much for your time, man. My pleasure. Anytime. So I do run a Patreon campaign for this show. And basically, it's a way to support the show financially if you really appreciate what's going on here. And in exchange for that support, there are two main perks. One is two patron exclusive episodes every month i'm about to play a clip from the most recent one and the other is inclusion in the you have permission facebook group which is increasingly uh really just an awesome community of uh like-minded but also diverse uh viewpoints and and people um it's really kind of blossomed into something very cool Uh, but regarding that first perk those extra episodes Here is a clip from the most recent one. This is my chat with Evan Rosa. Evan is a California native who for a long time was working at Biola, doing a bunch of their sort of public-facing thought work and media work. And now he has been poached by Yale to work with uh, the theologian Miroslav Volf on a new media project there. Um, He's awesome. If we lived in the same town, we would hang out all the time. But I met him this summer for the first time at Fuller Seminary. And uh, I was able to chat with him for about an hour about a, a lot of stuff about working at different, you know, at different universities and in different sort of thought and religion climates. We did a little bit of shop talk about uh, writing interviews and even a little bit of gear. We talked about his growing up Catholic and becoming evangelical at one point and then rediscovering mainline Christianity, all that stuff. So here's kind of one three or four minute extended clip of my chat with Evan to give you a sense of what we talked about. One thing I need to keep reminding myself is that there are just different levels of intellectual curiosity in the world. And I'm yeah, sur- yeah. I'm surrounded by enough people uh, and people email me regularly <laughs> or they'll text with me if they've listened to an episode. Uh, and a lot of the people that I self-sort to hang out and be friends with, right, are people who are interested in these ideas and, and do kind of need, in some sense, these ideas to work. But that's probably not most people. And it's something that I worry about. I don't know if you worry about this as well in, in making in making podcasts and, and other communications product oh, of yeah. like, yeah, if that. the wrong person reads or hears this, it's like maybe not going to be helpful to them at all. You know, it, it, it might, at least in the short term, be harmful. Um, yeah. It might cause a kind of a personal crisis that really is, is doesn't matter. They don't need to have it. Um, and that's interesting. And there's a difference between speaking one on one with someone. There are things I don't say to certain people I know that don't need this kind of faith crisis, mm-hmm. uh, and making something that is publicly available. Anybody who chooses to listen to it or read it can. I, I don't know. Have, what do you think about that <clears throat> question? Yeah, I think there's a temptation. First of all, like 
like our context here is one in which um, it's extremely tempting if you are if you find yourself in an idea space, if you find yourself with any kind of um, political, religious, or moral ideas happening, it's very tempting to um, identify for yourself. Oh, I'd like to have a platform, and of right. course, we we are all so caught up in um, in each other's giving and taking or receiving attention, right? And how much attention we give to certain people and not to others, including ourselves. Um, the reason I start there is um, ultimately like there's a desire to say something meaningful and have a real conversation with real people because um, that's how I think of the goods of reflection bearing their own little fruit, right? Is um, it's when, when I'm actually connecting with you, I'm understanding what you're saying and you're understanding me and we have an opportunity for a mutual shared understanding um, and growth. But a lot of people are making things just for the sake of being popular. Um, or and both famous. are happening at the same time. I mean, of course, you can I have, have both. I, you, don't, I don't want, you don't want to say that they're mutually exclusive. I have noticed in myself since I was a kid, like a kind of an exhibitionist quality, uh, not in the clinical sexual sense, but like, <laughs> you know, I'm an open book. Like I will, I want to make, yeah. I want to record songs with my friends and I want everybody to hear them and comment on them. Uh, yeah, you check can, this out. People can ask me anything in a public group and I will usually answer it pretty forthrightly. Like I like attention. I'm a verbal processor yeah. and I like processing in front of people and I like the feedback and, and I'm sure I, I yeah, like I like the attention. You describe sure me as well. I just yeah, describe you. I feel the exact same way. And it's always been that way. And I think there is one level where th- there's a kind of innocence uh, and integrity that comes along with that. But we're also in a space where that's it's it can also be heavily exploited um, or if not heavily exploited. It's just an afterthought about. Like, so your concern was, you know, uh, are are we raising genuinely helpful conversations for the right kind of audience? And I think that's that's like a interesting space to be in. Right. Because, um, of course, everyone's the largest audience they can. Right. In part because. Um, uh, we have this kind of faulty impression that more is better. Um, but you want to extend what you think is good and you want to get messaging that you believe in further out there. That's um, our model of influence. Um, but I think to embrace what you just said is to also embrace the idea of smaller communities and making media that is intentionally meant to be consumed by a smaller niche audience. Um, And I think that can be important too, because often that's where real quality comes. That's where a different model of influence and a different model of growth and purpose can be found. So if that sounded interesting to you, or if you are interested in becoming a patron for other reasons, head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch, K-O-C-H, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. I really appreciate it. Now, one thing I need to say before we get into this next section with Rebecca is I need to explain the word metaphysics because it comes up and we just kind of breeze right past it. Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that deals with the first principles of things, including abstract concepts such as being, 
knowing, substance, cause, identity, time, and space. So this is like the hardest branch of philosophy in some sense. In another sense, it's easy uh, in that it's intuitive. We, what are we? What kind of stuff exists? That's what metaphysics is. So who I'm talking to next, that was a great chat with uh, Ken Miller. This is Rebecca Rice, and she is a philosopher at Seattle Pacific University, obviously here in Seattle. And she has uh, another whole kind of set of questions she's thinking about regarding physicality of persons. So here's my chat with Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Great to be with you. First, can we start by having you describe for us the difference between physicalism and dualism. These are sort of the two main classic competing theories, right? Yeah, yeah. So dualism is the historical view, the view that I would say was the received view for, uh, well, much of at least Western human history, where the thinking was that a human being is uh, really uh, composed of two independent substances. The mind or the soul, philosophers use those terms interchangeably, Whatever that part of you is, if any there be, that is not material, that is not part of the physical. Um, and then the other part that you're made up of, of course, is your physical body, right? And so this view goes back at least to Plato, really beyond, and is articulated even more so in Descartes, who, you know, says, I uh, not only am I composed both of a physical substance and a non-physical substance, but I am my mind, my soul. And this is kind of how a lot of people think about this kind of by default in the Western imagination, right? It's like, I've got this soul, it's the one making these choices, and it tells my body what to do. Yeah, our ordinary ways of speaking about ourselves tend to sound very dualistic. So I think we use dualistic language quite a bit. I think it's an interesting question, whether when pressed, we're going to stick with a kind of dualistic picture or not. But I do think that, well, the way that we talk about ourselves often is very, very dualistic. We talk about our minds and our bodies. Notice, I think it's very interesting that we talk about mental health and physical health as if they're distinct. Totally. And it's at yeah. least an open question whether right. they're distinct. Are those distinct? Yeah. Yeah. So physicalism, on the other hand, uh, of any stripe, is the view that uh, we are physical through and through. Um, so there is no non-physical or immaterial substance that makes us up. Well, if you haven't already yet, you probably should refill your coffee because we're obviously getting pretty nerdy here today, but we're not going to apologize. We're doing we're doing real work. So dualism, this idea that, yeah, I have a physical body, but I also have this immaterial mind or soul. It seems great at first. Uh, for a lot of reasons, it seems intuitive to like how we perceive our life. Like it, it sure feels like there's some part of me that I can't see that tells my arms to move. Um, it works really well to think about, well, I, uh, for Christian reasons, I was, my soul was lost. Now my soul is saved. If I don't have a soul, what are we talking about? But there, um, there are problems with it, which is why not everybody holds this view. And one of those problems has to do with resurrection. So can you explain the problem with dualism and resurrection? So I think there's maybe a problem only when it comes to resurrection, only for one variety of dualism. Okay. But it might be the variety that a lot of people are most familiar with because it's a kind of platonic 
version, uh, whereby the thinking is this. I'm composed of a soul and a body, mind and a body, and I am my mind. So, you know, what happens at the point of death? Well, my body ceases, at least my bodily functions cease, um, cease to occur, and maybe even my body is destroyed in some fashion, um, but I persist nonetheless. So Plato thought, and he was the first to give an argument for the immortality of the soul. So not only do you have a soul, but that soul is immortal, meaning indestructible. So the thinking is, it doesn't matter what happens to my body, I will float on. Right? I mean, I won't literally right. float, but yeah. whatever, I will persist. I, I think there might be a kind of theological problem here, at least coming out of Christian theism, because if you think that the resurrection to come, the thing hoped for, right, is supposed to be a miraculous event, something that is provided by the divine, right, something that we don't just get in virtue of the kinds of things we are. Then this view has it that you are the sort of thing that just by your very nature persists. So God doesn't actually have to do anything to cause you to persist. You just are because you're an immortal, indestructible, immaterial thing. In Christian theology, it seems pretty clear that this is supposed to be, if, if you get, if you get anything beyond death, that's, that's like a, that's a gift, right? Like that's like it's a, supposed that's to be gonna, the, yeah, the main sign that God loves you and has a good plan is that God has sort of intervened in some way right. to give you the gift of salvation. Now, and it should be quite miraculous, right? It's not just yeah. like a uh, kind of ordinary natural course of things. In fact, it's quite not oh, interesting. part of the ordinary natural course of things. Well, I don't know. Now, it might just be that this has uh, – that this Plato's kind of esoteric idea here has seeped so thoroughly into popular American Christianity that I wasn't taken aback listening to you. I was like, no, I think that's sort of what I was taught, that mm-hmm. everybody naturally has an immaterial soul. They probably got it at conception or something like that. And uh, in the natural course of things, they will persist. And by default, they should go to hell or something like that. They'll persist, but they haven't been good. And we none of us have been good. We've all sinned. And so the gift of grace is simply God saying, well, I'm going to basically offer you heaven. You don't deserve that. It's going to make the rest of your immortal existence awesome. And you didn't. I didn't need to do that. And I've chosen to do that, and that's grace. That's God's love. So I don't think I thought of it as so miraculous. I guess the whole thing is kind of miraculous, creating souls and whatever. All that's miraculous. Yeah. But so that's interesting. I didn't really have well, that Well, it does sort of reduce God. This picture reduces God to like the grand sorting machine, right? It's like, mm, I got yeah. all these souls. What am I going to do with them? You know, I got to put them somewhere. I mean, right. literally, you don't need to place them somewhere because they're not located. But like, yeah. you know, you got to do something with them, give them some sets of some kind of set of experiences. Yeah. So what am I going to do? And I, I just that just doesn't seem to be the kind of picture of resurrection that at least I think we get in Scripture. I mean, not that it's super clear what we get, yeah. but I think there yeah. it, it looks like I, I go back to Aquinas and others who are very interested in this notion of dependence. Right. And in what ways are dependent upon God at every moment? Exactly. So that means yours and my existence is going to depend on the divine at every moment. And so this idea that we're just kind of these immortal kind of things that just, you know, float on. um, I'm just not sure it squares really well with Christian theology. But I mean, that's 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 an interesting, you know, that's a a conversation to be had among Christian theists. Right. I think usually folks who are moving away or have moved away from dualism do so for altogether different reasons, not not theological. So let's get into those. What what is the primary motivation 
for someone to come to a physicalist understanding, even if they're a Christian? And, you know, I should probably take a step back for a second and make a distinction. So if you are a theist and you believe God exists, you may just straight away be an ontological dualist. And ontological means like all the things that exist. Yeah. So if you're yeah. talking about what exists in reality or what, you know, what, what is, what is real? Yeah. Yeah. Of what is reality composed. Right. And you, if you're a theist, then you may think that there is at least one non-physical thing, namely God. Yeah. Right. Are there any other non-physical things? Well, I don't know. Right. But it yeah. seems now you could be an, an ontological, even substance dualist. And it seems to me the question of what are human persons like is still an open one. On the other hand, if you are an ontological physicalist. If all there is is matter. Right. And you think there is nothing but the sorts of things that physicists talk about. Right. Then uh, of what are human persons going to be like? Well, we're going to be also composed entirely and only hmm. of physical stuff. So I do think if you're an ontological physicalist, that's going to preclude certain views about human persons. But if you're an ontological dualist, I think all of the options are still on the table. That makes sense. And actually, so I, I had saved this question for later, but I'll bring it in now. I was talking with my wife this morning about, she said, what do you have today? And I was like, well, I'm interviewing Rebecca about physicals. She's like, well, is God a physical thing? And so that's my question to you. If you're a Christian physicalist, are you required to say that God is only physical or can you say God has to be by definition more than physical for God to create physical things, but God only creates physical things. Is that sort of where you end up landing? Right. So, I mean, I suppose if one has, you know, strong reasons for being an ontological physicalist, we could have the conversation of whether one could still be a Christian theist. Yeah. I, 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 I'm reluctant to call things the orthodox view, but right. Sure. I think for many uh, theists and even beyond Christian theists, when they're thinking about God, um, they're they're thinking about a being who is not, for example, constrained by physical laws. And if you think God does not need or needn't operate in accordance with physical laws, because perhaps God is the one who set those laws into motion, then then it may be that that you have reason to be thinking about God as a non-physical thing. Brass tacks. If I say I am leaning towards Christian physicalism, that does not require that I say God is a physical thing, just that this universe is only physical. I don't even think it requires you to say that this universe okay. is physical. I think when, at least the way I approach this is I, my interest is in what are you and I like? Okay? What are human persons like? Sure. Yeah. And if you're a theist, I think you're really asking the question this way. You're saying, okay, of all the ways that God could have or might have made us, which way did he pick? Right? Yeah. What did he decide to do? Uh, did God decide to make dual creatures or did God decide to make uh, through and through physical creatures? And so now I think our empirical evidence becomes really relevant because now we're wondering what reasons do we have for thinking that we are such and such? Right. That we are like this or like that. Great. So let's let's get into that. The real question today is, can does Christian physicalism make sense? Basically, like, is this an, an option? I'm, I, we're not going to try and make a open and shut case for it there. As we're going to get to there, we don't actually have enough data for, for either dualism or physicalism. It's not open and shut. It's an open question. It's a difficult question. But the question here is, can you reasonably be a Christian physicalism and still have basic Christian theology, Christian physicalist? Let's get to the motivations. So what would be the motivation for considering Christian physicalism? Why not just be a dualist? 
Good. So I think there are two reasons. The first has to do with some well-known objections to dualism. And the second concerns a kind of argument for physicalism. Okay, well-known objections. Yeah, so maybe the best-known objection to dualism is one that Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia raised to Descartes himself, where she asked him to please tell her um, how it is that this immaterial substance is able to produce effects in a physical substance. Right. Right? So she asked, how does that causation go? Now, she's pretty savvy uh, insofar as she knows that the going thinking about causation of the time is that causation uh, is sort of what we sometimes call a billiard ball model, right? You've got take like one billiard ball, it's moving, it comes into contact with the second and produces motion in the second. So this idea of sort of uh, this productive notion where you get surface to surface contact, right? Yeah. And so if that's kind of the model we're working with, she very astutely points out that um, we're not going to get that if what we have is um, a mind, an immaterial thing that is not located, it's not spatially extended, uh, it's not going to be able to come into contact with the body, which is located and is extended. Yeah, you have to you basically have to say something like my soul is inside my brain, but it's not because the brain is obviously where the neurons are firing that move my arms you end up tying yourself in knots to say, but it's but it's not physical, so it's not in my brain. But it right. has to be in my brain right. or, or something, right? So it's many people weird. think Descartes did exactly that and just tied himself in knots and tried. He, okay. he suggested maybe there's a certain gland in my brain where this soul-body right. interaction happens. And you can see that, well, now you've told us where, which is really a problem because you've said the soul is not located. So Right, okay. Um, so that's the classic That's the classic, classic case. Classic now, problem, I want to yeah. say a, a number of dualists have pointed out that, that Elizabeth, her question doesn't necessarily show us that dualism is incoherent or it's guilty of endorsing a contradiction or anything okay. like that. And I think they're, I think they're right about that. Um, but we also have to remember that dualism is not the only game in town. It's not the only view. Right. And so um, when you're asking these kinds of metaphysical questions about what is the nature of or out of you know what are certain kinds of things composed what you're doing is you're having to you know really take um, the available theories and compare them and say mm-hmm. which theory seems to do the best job right. here and we accounting for what time. we want we do this all the time we do it with those of us who have spent time thinking about it we do it with atonement theories yes we do it with inerrancy or not or infallibility or something yeah. else like what is the data yeah we, we just do this there are multiple ways to read the Adam and Eve account and we sort of come to a decision about what we think it might mean. So we're just doing it for physicalism and dualism. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let me just unpack a little bit um, more about Elizabeth. I think one way to understand what she's saying is the way we're thinking about causation between physical objects, it's not going to work. So do you have another account of causation? Like, how does the causation work between a non-material, an immaterial thing and a material thing? Um, how does that go? And you might think if Descartes or any dualist can't offer, doesn't have an, an answer on offer, then that might be a kind of theoretical deficit of the view, right? So that's sure. the way to think about it, as oppo- I think, um, as opposed to saying, oh, it was a devastating view. It showed the view is false. Yeah, it's, just, it's it, an issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So now we um, we move to physicalism. And the, really, um, I think most people who are convinced of physicalism, it's an empirical argument that's getting them there. And and again, it's not a knockdown drag out argument. We're not going to have a demonstration um, that physicalism is true. Uh, we're not going to be able to demonstrate that 
dualism right. is true either. Right. It's really, at the end of the day, that what we know from brain science is that there's a very tight connection between our mentality and our physicality. And when I say tight connection, but we also have evidence for some, uh, potentially for some causation. You know, if you take a certain kind of chemical, you will have a certain exactly. kind of experiential result. Exactly, yeah. And the dualists notably can tell the story too, but they have the added burden of having to say something about how this causation could possibly go. Yeah. How is how is my body both affected by the the cause of my immaterial soul or mind and drugs work? Particularly if right? the two are independent in the sense that one could be without the other. It just seems like why can we affect people so reliably through chemical means, for instance? And and Ken Ken says your brain is a chemical machine, basically. Mm-hmm. And so there there becomes a problem. But okay, so if we're at physicalism, let's say we've taken your argument, and we say, all right, I'm going to be a physicalist. There are two kinds of physicalists. The way that philosophers talk about it, there is reductive and non-reductive physicalism. Can you explain those terms? Yeah, sure. So, so remember, both, both any physicalist uh, claims that there's no immaterial substance. Now, one way to put this is to understand a kind of distinction that Aristotle gave us, which is that there is the thing, the substance, and then features of the thing. The reductive physicalists will claim that the mental, and here we're talking about things like beliefs, desires, intentions, willings, choosings, decidings, all of that stuff is wholly reducible to physical goings on. Okay, so wholly reducible. So, so for instance, if you have described something, you have explained it. If you can say, neuron B42 went here and whatever, that is the full account of what happened. That's reductive physicalism. Yeah, if you could give an exhaustive physical explanation of what's going on uh, in the brain, you you know, when a person claims to be in a state of remembering, you will have said everything there is to say about the memory. Right, yeah. right. So then what is non-reductive physicalism? So the non-reductive physicalist claims that there are what they call irreducibly mental states or events. Uh, irreducibly mental. Irreducibly mental. So, for example, they'll, they'll point to certain things. Take a, a belief, right? And by the way, you don't just have belief states. You um, have beliefs with certain content. So your belief is about something, right? So you believe that you are in my office now, and that belief, right, it has what we call intentionality. You have a belief about, you have a desire for, you hope that, right? There's some kind of, um, you know, aboutness, as we sometimes call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And you might think that uh, even a complete physical explanation of what's going on in the brain will not uh, reveal that feature, that intentional feature of mentality or of mental states. Yeah. The, another way people have talked about this is this is the hard problem of consciousness. What does it feel like? What is it like to be a bat? We can describe the sonar of a bat. This is Thomas Nagel in the 70s, right? Philosopher, famous paper. We can describe sonar, but we don't know what it's like to move with sonar. Like we know what sonar is. They have it on a submarine, but we can't we cannot even fathom the subjective experience of flying around like a bat using sonar. We just, we have no access to that. Right. And even if I could, it would be, an, it, I would be imagining what it would be like for me. For a human to do to, it. Exactly. And so there's just, we Not just can't cross that mm-hmm. membrane. But I think that non-reductive physicalist is saying something metaphysically robust as well. Okay. Um, in what does saying, metaphysically robust mean? Well, I mean, they're saying that there really are features yeah. of 
our mental lives, right, that cannot be wholly explained in physical terms. Okay. So that's to say even a complete physical explanation, it's not just that it would be a level down that wouldn't be useful to us in every respect. It's that it would not fully capture everything that can be said, properly said, mm-hmm. of, say, the experience. So in the case of um, Nagel, as you were talking about, uh, some non-reductionists will claim that, you know, qualia can't be accounted for. What is qualia? Qualia is the raw feels of experience. Feeling, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're, you're looking at the carpet in my office right now, and if you tried to communicate to your listeners, right, what it is like to see this carpet, let's suppose you even had, you know, a very deep understanding of, like, the fibers involved and how the light ray, you know, rays bounced off the carpet onto your retina, right? Even if you could explain in detail that entire process, it's very doubtful that your listeners will then have the experience of seeing the carpet, right? Um, and so even if you could give the ex- an exhaustive physical explanation, um, it's not clear that you could then um, cause them to have the experience of. Um, so that's another way. So it might, you know, sometimes we talk about um, mentality being intentional. Sometimes we talk about certain kinds of features of experience um, that those seem not to be, you know, exhausted by the physical phenomena. But that's what the non-reductionist is going for. There's usually many, but not all, uh, non-reductive physicalists also want to account for something we call mental causation. So they want to tell a familiar story about human action. And that story is that when I act, that behavior of mine is produced or caused by some mental occurrence in me. So maybe I might walk over and flip the switch and you could say, why did you do that? And I would say, well, I wanted to illuminate the room and I thought this was a good way to do it. So notice there was a desire there. There was a belief. I might have formed an intention to hereby flip the switch in order to turn on the light. Um, And all of that is mental. You know, we tend to say, I did it because I wanted to. And that because is very naturally read causally. And that would suggest that my mental states or mental events might actually be producing my bodily movements. And that's a very natural way to think about action. But in order for that to be right, these mental items have to be causally efficacious. And so that's what we call mental causation. So many, again, not all, non-reductive physicalists are hoping to hold on to that familiar view of action and be able to account for it. I have a prayer life as a Christian. And uh, sometimes I think that my interaction with God in prayer produces results in my brain. So uh, an idea comes to mind or um, I'm reminded of something that doesn't seem like I would have come up with it. I get a feeling of joy sometimes. So I think that in some way God is uh, opening up certain certain chemicals that make me feel joyful or, you know, consolation or desolation, as Ignatius calls it. Uh, in that case, am I already pre-committed to the fact that an immaterial causal being can make changes in the physical world? Like, am I already a dualist at that point? There's the, the view that, that God created the physical. So clearly right. you've got an immaterial thing producing material effects. And this is why I stressed earlier that while the mind-body problem, that was Princess Elizabeth's question, is I think a puzzling one uh, for dualism, a Christian theist is already already had to bite that bullet, right? At least had to say, okay, I maybe it's not clear to me how the causation works, but I've, I'm sort of committed 
to it maybe working out somehow. But I think it's one thing to say that this happens, especially, you know, in the case specifically of the divine, and another to say that it happens every time you or I act. Sure. So that it is now a prolific feature of the world. So prolific. I mean, just, you know, every time you act, multiplied by uh, all the actions you ever perform, multiplied by all the people who have ever existed, and now you've got immaterial to material causation all over the place depends on how you think about causation here and this is I think Hmm. something that theists who want to go this route have to think really hard about Um, because if you're talking about causation as a kind of influence then you wonder you know how all this influence is happening but it's not sort of perceptible or yeah some people want to say maybe maybe the kind of stuff that I'm describing could just happen at the quantum level perhaps God has some control over quantum variation I, I talked to Philip Clayton about this a few months ago, and he seemed to think, uh, we, we kind of tried that for about 10 years and hasn't really produced the kind of uh, fruit we hoped. And so maybe that's still an open question, but but perhaps it is something like that. And that would still be different, I guess, than sort of large-scale miracles that contravene the laws of physics. Like, I don't think that when I feel consolation through, for let's call it dopamine or serotonin, being flooded into my brain at the thought of a certain, you know, idea or whatever, that's not breaking the laws of physics necessarily. That stuff's in there. I've got stores of it. You know, it's like sometimes it comes in, sometimes it doesn't. Oftentimes I feel very joyful about things that I really wouldn't have expected to feel joyful about. None of that necessarily needs to be breaking the laws of physics. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. so. But like, uh, you know, I don't know, a virgin birth, for instance, like a conception without semen Mm -hmm. would be that would be breaking the laws of physics. That's a different kind of a thing that we're talking about. I think it's a different kind of a thing. I mean, I do think, you know, we want to then talk about what laws are and whether they're exceptionless. Damn philosophers. But sure, I I do think there are differences in the kinds of events you describe for sure. Yeah, I want to spend pretty much the rest of our time just thinking about stuff that we would consider sort of necessary for Christian theology and and trying to think about, can we do this with physicalism? Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we're, we're mostly focusing on people as physical beings, not mm-hmm. so much, are there, is there anything immaterial? Maybe that's God. Okay, that's fine. But some of these really, these big ones. So this one is hard. We, we talked about this before we started with your students, the Imago Dei. This is an idea that Human beings are specially created in God's image. A lot of times people will think, well, that's because we have a soul and God has a soul or God is a big mind and we are mind-like. You know, which of these might work with physicalism? Yeah, this is such an interesting thing. And I can can just say I I was brought up in, I think, what many would consider a pretty characteristic kind of evangelical setting. And one observation I've made, especially in teaching a number of students who also come from this kind of uh, climate, right, is that they tend to go metaphysical really quickly. So so Imago Dei is a nice example um, where they'll say, well, wait a minute, if we're made in God's image, it must mean that we are like compositionally like God somehow, like made up of the same stuff, which would be shocking to me if we were really made up of the same stuff as God. But That seems okay. definitively false. Or at least enough you know, similar enough. I mean, I've also had them say things, well, then how can we commune with God? It, 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 like, isn't it soul to soul communion? And I'm going, well, I, 
goodness. Um, I wouldn't have thought God was so limited if, you yeah. know, if there be such a being like this. Uh, well, why? also, how does God hear the praise of the rocks crying out if they don't have souls? So even just on the basic language of scripture, God can clearly get something from the physical world that doesn't involve souls. Well, it at least doesn't seem just outrageous to me to think that God could have some kind of relationship with non-human animals. I mean, that right. doesn't seem yeah. ridiculous. I don't I don't know how many people are likely to attribute a soul to them, but But even just all of nature proclaims God's glory and God literally can't hear it. Like no, like God whatever it is that God is glorified by in nature, God is able to somehow receive that so God can receive something from the physical world. It's not like the only way God can commune with anybody is soul to soul. That just seems weird. That we're, yeah. we're imposing some Greek notion on yeah, the there's text. like metaphysical principles that I can't I can't yeah. think of what our motivation yeah. would be for holding. Okay. So, but I think the um, the Mago Dave one is interesting. I I think what it does is it it points us or encourages us to think about Imago Dei not in a metaphysical way, not in a compositional way, but in you know in some other way. Like, what is it about our situation here such that we're able to maybe do things that like make make decisions um that can really help or harm right and yeah or there, there's the temple model right which is like uh in the jewish temple sacrifice like the image of god was the high priest this is something that jesus ends up in coming and doing for us but even in the garden basically in god's original plan for humans it's like hey you're my you're my image bearers on the earth you know this there's language about co-creation you know, it's that kind of stuff. That's an example of one way of thinking of Imago mm-hmm. Day. Another mm-hmm. way people have thought about it is the ability to make moral decisions and moral choices, the ability to accept God's salvation or not, to accept God's love and communication and self-revelation or to reject it. We have that choice. That might be the Imago Day. That doesn't seem to be precluded by a physicalist explanation. I mean, if just saying that stuff goes on in our brain. Right. 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 Okay. <laughs> so you have no problem. Okay. But resurrection, this one's tough. So yeah. I want to talk about Christ's resurrection and the hope of future resurrection as well. On a physicalist understanding of persons, can Christ be raised from the dead? What do we mean? I mean, I've talked about this before. What do we mean by raised from the dead? Like there are a lot of different conceptions of what this, what resurrection is. And the text is not very helpful uh, in terms of, not locking down one of those. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm generally of the opinion that scripture doesn't seem to be in the business of doing metaphysics, at least, I mean, other than talking about some truths that are truths about metaphysical reality, but, but not in terms of doing what is the nature of, or out of, you know, how exactly did this work mechanistically? It's not doing it. Yeah. What I get, I would imagine what a Christian theist wants to do is in forming a theory about such things is at least form theories that are not incompatible. I don't know that I have a theory about Christ's resurrection. That's okay. Um, And I don't know even that we need or will want to say the same thing about Christ's resurrection. Because remember, this is the third person of the Trinity. Second. Sorry, second. (laughs) A person of the Trinity. Uh, Is that not a fireball offense? Right, that would be. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, Yeah. right. There's the Holy Spirit. Okay. um, Or whatever. He's in the Trinity. Is it hierarchical? Like, does it matter? I don't think so. It's just the way it's colloquial. It's the way we talk about it. Yeah, second person. Sorry. So that right there, you know, we've already said God is non-physical. What do we mean? Who's non-physical? I, perhaps you know, all I'm, we need, yeah, perhaps all we need for Christ's resurrection is the exact same thing we need for God creating the universe in the first place. Maybe anytime the Godhead is involved in something, 
that's all we need. I mean, maybe. Well, I would venture to say incarnation is different than creation, right? Be, becoming. Sure. So, like, yeah. I'm not an incarnate anything, right? I'm just the thing I yep. am. So, yep. so there seem to be some differences, and I wouldn't even be surprised if they weren't, you know, metaphysical differences actually between. And, and I, you know, people might balk at that because what but Christ was supposed to be entirely human. Yeah, but also entirely divine. So, I mean, so look, we're dealing part, with a different yeah. kind of, I mean, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's fine. So then yeah. we're just going to, we're going to play the, look, if we accept the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity into Jesus of Nazareth, then we're just playing with a different rule book. And we don't necessarily need to describe that. It's a matter of faith. We are confessing. I think it. it could be a super interesting conversation. Sure. I just don't know that I have a view on it. Sure. Yeah. And and maybe <laughs> and 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 in sort of in a sense, all bets are off if we're gonna say that. In, in terms yeah. of there's certainly different bets are on than the hope of my particular That's right. future resurrection in some state That's in, right. in the kingdom. So what we have reason to say might be true of yours and my resurrection if we get such a thing could very well be different than what different. we might say about. So then let's yeah. talk about that. Let's so uh one way that people think about the coming kingdom, the second coming, the life to come, heaven, whatever, is like, well, the part of me that is my soul, that is not connected to my body, that's the part that will be given some sort of new body. Basically, I'll be reclothed. Um, and if I was burned up uh, in a fire on this earth, that's not going to be a problem because, mm-hmm. like, the part of me that's not physical is going to get something new. But if I'm a physicalist and I think that, no, like, the me that God created is only made of physical stuff. That seems to be a problem for thinking about the resurrection, the life to come. Right. Uh, a physical thing <laughs> upon my death, right? My The physical processes, the pres- physical functions cease. And that means something like physical extinction. Then how do I, a physical thing, survive that? Right. How can I persist through that? So I think this question about persistence to, say, an afterlife of any kind is a super interesting one. And I guess the, the, the quick answer, though not really satisfying, is what it will take for you to survive your death depends on what kind of thing you are, right? So if you are a soul, we'll tell one kind of story, right? You need persistence of that soul. Now, when we're talking about physical objects, let's just talk for a minute, I think, to, to give the right kind of framework for this. We have a kind of puzzle that already exists in in current existence. We don't even have to talk about an afterlife. So um, take your infant self and your current self. Well, when you see pictures of, I don't know, family members holding your infant self, you say, look, that's a picture of so-and-so holding me. Uh, And yet that person is very dissimilar from you, right, in a number of respects. We can talk about all the psychological respects. But now let's just talk about the bodies, right? Your infant body is very dissimilar to your current body. And yet we imagine that one in the same body existed then as exists now. That's interesting. The only physical similarity between your infant body and your current body is actually just the way that your DNA tells your body to self-structure. Because all your atoms are different. Yes. Every single bit of matter, including, I think, the molecules out of which your DNA is actually made in your blood. Like, the DNA is a pattern that will self-replicate, but actually not even the same actual DNA is still in you. Mm -hmm. It's all new stuff. So, literally, the only thing, it's it's an organizing pattern that your physical parts uh, adhere to. That persists. 
but physically everything else about you is actually different. Right. That's right. That's crazy to think about. But here's the thing. We still say. But you're still you. One in the same body. And of course, body. in a certain sense, of course I am still me. Mm-hmm. And it is still my body. Like, uh, it doesn't change all at once. I don't get a whole new body. I'm sort of interested in looking at the various proposals that have been given um, for kind of physicalist or materialist, however you want to put it, conceptions of resurrection. So how or of postmortem existence, right? Postmortem survival. And to my mind, some of them meets what I think the conditions of a kind of sufficiently robust physicalism would require and others I think don't. Well, we have five more minutes to talk, so <laughs> you might only be able to sketch one of those quickly. Okay. Um, this question about what are human persons composed of? These are these are deep and important and interesting philosophical questions, but they're going to remain such. Right. Not, yeah. So I... Well, I think we won't settle them, right? We'll settle them. We, yeah. We're talking about compatibility yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, can I be a Christian and be a physicalist? So here's That's the person I imagine. It, yeah. I imagine somebody who, even if they're not wholly convinced, they're saying, you know, this this idea of physicalism about persons, it that makes sense. I think that might be right. And then they're asking, well, does that preclude my being a Christian theist? Or does that right. preclude my taking seriously a view about that there might actually be an afterlife? Right. Right. So for a person who's asking that question, I think if we can tell a story that's possible, then we've done enough, right? Mm, it, right. Now, Peter Vandenwagen tells what he calls a just-so story. He's not proposing that this is what happens. He's saying, here's a way of carving out a view according to which persons could survive their deaths um, and, come, you know, and persist into an afterlife. And he says, it goes like this. Imagine that just prior to death, God snatches whatever physical part of you is essential to your being you. That's... Let's remember, we've talked about the body, but we haven't even talked about what part of the body. Right, right. Um, you don't need your entire body. You can yeah. lose a limb and still be you. Of course. You can even sustain kind of, you know, um, astonishing amounts of um, brain damage. Not a lot, but certain yeah. amounts yeah. and still be you. So let's suppose God snatches that, replaces it with a simulacrum so that, you know, upon doing autopsies and other such things, we don't notice anything's missing. And then whisks that bit of you away to an afterlife. You can, you know fill in the body, the, however God right. likes from there. Um, maybe it's bionic. I'm kind of hoping it's bionic. So, um, right. And then um, and, and into one that can persist, say, in these new conditions. But in any case, um, enough so that what you've got is post-mortem is the same thing that you had pre-mortem. If you have an omnipotent being in the picture, why not? That doesn't seem to uh, involve any kind of logical contradictions, right? It seems like it's, I mean, it, it's fantastic, Shortly, but it might be a little surprising and bizarre. It's not what we were thinking happened, um, but it seems possible. And so that that might be. I mean, to my mind, something like that might be enough. Now, I'm not suggesting, but of course, for that one, there might be. There's ten more. There's a hundred more. There are additional views as well. Yes, I mean, but you could. He's basically saying, like, look, you could come up with a lot of ways that this could happen, and if you have a god being involved, then you might not expect that it's going to make total sense to you. Kind of a thing. But it might be enough to to say you don't, as it turns out, need a soul in order to enjoy an right, afterlife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be within a certain range. I think it sure. could be a number of things like this. I think yeah. um, there might be other ways it could go as well. Um, I do think it's helpful if we want a view that seems believable at all, right? Mm-hmm. 
it at least is going to have to satisfy some metaphysical constraints. Yeah. And so once we start, I want to be careful that we don't just pull anything. Like, it could go any way. Um, because right. it turns out, I think there, as we know, there just aren't, I mean, there are um, some deal breakers to our existence, right? Yeah. So the question is, if we are a certain kind of thing, like a physical sort of thing, what has to be true for a physical thing like that to persist? Really from one, from T to T1, uh, whatever you know, if, even if that, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and so um, you build in, you know, the kind of constraints and say, okay, with well, is that at least metaphysically possible? And if the answer is yes, then it, it can be brought about by a being like that. If you've already posited that there's a being right. in existence, interesting, like that. Yeah. man. Not as robust as we like, but these are the most difficult questions to answer. These are a lot harder than did Adam and Eve need to actually exist, you know, like, or do I need to believe that the flood covered the whole earth? Like that's much easier to solve than could I believe that I'm only physical stuff? I mean, it's just harder. These are just, these are the kind of things that keep philosophers employed essentially. I think that when you talk about faith and science these days, much as it used to always be kind of evolutionary theory and various creationisms, right? Um, these, I think neuroscience is presenting, uh, it's kind of the new set of issues and, and issues pertaining to, you know, certainly any kind of commitment to an afterlife, perhaps, that, as we're talking about here, but, but also views that we have of ourselves as kind of rational, autonomous decision makers, conscious agents, and, and so on. So how do you give accounts of those sorts of things? Maybe issues of free will come in as well. Um, can we tell a story according to that? If you know, what I decide is what my neurons do, right? Because we're living in a time where, you know, the accelerated pace with which we're getting information out of neuroscience is, is very exciting, very cool. But as it kind of makes its way into, um, you know, out beyond the academy and into many of our kind of consciousnesses, I think these kinds of questions arise. And so while these are very abstract, very, you know, philosophical, they can feel very esoteric. They're also, I think, very, very timely because I think, you know, the way that we're coming to think about ourselves is really a departure from how we've thought about ourselves for a long, for many, many centuries. And so I think it's important to be having these conversations. And um, yeah, just a little bit of intellectual humility to recognize that we are early on a lot of these questions and the data is very new and we're trying to think about ways of making sense of this. And like, the mind-body problem exists for everybody, and the subjectivity-objectivity problem of science, of describing qualia, the state of the bat, that's that's a hard problem, too. And that's not just because you read a Richard Dawkins book doesn't mean that you've solved that and the Christians haven't. Like, it's these are just hard things, and we're thinking through them. Rebecca, we're out of time. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to Scott Sanjemi for editing my conversations today with Ken and Rebecca. I've got links to two of Ken's books in the show notes. And yeah, I guess we'll see you guys next week. I don't think I have anything else to say except, you know, consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. All right. Thanks. Thanks.